Hey, good evening. How are you? And hello to uh, those of you joining us at the other campuses. I'm really glad to be able to share with you uh, this fellow here. Uh, for those of you who were around like 16 months ago, you might remember Stephen was with us back uh, last October. Guy from Newfoundland. Do you remember the little Newfie that was here? Yeah, you remember that? So a lot of stuff has happened in the meanwhile, and we wanted to give you a little update, primarily to prime the pump. For Sunday night, we are doing an Atlantic Canada Vision Night here at Downs Road uh, over in Centre Court. And if you've got any interest whatsoever in what God is doing out in Atlantic Canada, maybe you're from Atlantic Canada, the Maritimes, or Newfoundland, maybe you've got family or friends living back there, maybe you're a prayer warrior, and for whatever reason, God has put Atlantic Canada on your heart, maybe you would just like to come for a free dessert. <laughs> Uh, tomorrow night, Sunday night, here at Downs Road, would like to invite you out. But uh, to prime the pump, I was I wanted to ask Stephen a few questions. Great, have you here, buddy? Good to be here. Yeah, it's good. So back in the fall, this amazing story, little church of 200 people that has never really had a permanent church building. You were meeting in a in a house, really, a renovated house. Yep. Sold that, moved out, rented facilities. You finally grown up. You were able to buy a real church building. <laughs> yes. Yeah, 400 seater. How has the renovation projects gone and all this kind of stuff? Tell us. Well, wonderful. If you so look at those uh, pictures, uh, yeah. So God just was so miraculous to us. We have been really orphans. Uh, we ende endeavored on a huge project to plant churches in statistically now the least evangelized city in all of Canada. Hmm. And um, because of the tragedy of some of the mistakes that the Roman Catholic Church made in St. John's. They literally had to sell every church facility they had. They had to come up with $50 million. Mm -hmm. Wonder of wonders, that facility, one of the pictures you saw of that big building, just to give you an idea, if you remember the last time I was here, I was asking you to pray. We had two acres of land that we paid $900,000 for post-COVID to build a 16,000-square-foot building, slab on grade, all wood construction, $4 million. God allowed us to buy that Catholic church, which was called Mary Queen of the World. We had our first Sunday in October of this past, of 2022, 4.3 acres of land. That's a 17,000 square foot brick and steel building mm -hmm. with the rectory that's what, where the priests used to live that will become, Lord willing, the future home of Mile One Mission, which is another 6,500 square feet. All of that for $1.3 million. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, thank you, Lord. So, uh, question I've got about the rectory. So, you're doing a massive renovation. We saw it down to the studs there in those pictures. So, what is that renovation going to allow Mile One Mission to accomplish in doing that big? Well, first work? of all, let me say on behalf of Calvary Baptist, Matt Leahy over here is our first church planter that you guys heard me talk about. The other two church planters we have, that building you see there. Uh, thank you, Northview Community Church, for your love, your support. You guys have been with us. None of this was possible except God working through you guys. But we have stripped this down now, as you see, to the studs. I would ask you to pray. I mean, that building was built over probably 60, 70 years in phases. The uh, shell out there is only two by four walls. So we got to do something about that. We got to put a new roof on it. But that will be the future home of all things Mile One Mission. That will be the place where all of our interns, all of our planters, they'll have their own office space, the ability to gather as we teach them and prep them, as they contextualize, get into the neighborhoods. It's a safe place for them, a resource center. And you all are being used of God to help make those things happen. And I can't say thank you enough. Oh, that's cool. I was wondering, all those cheap church buildings, could you buy one and ship it out here? Because we need some more space here as well. So anyway, so hey, one question, and I know you're going to talk a lot about this tomorrow night, but for people who may not be there. So I've got a funny question for you. Newfoundland, as we're looking at the recent census, 
Newfoundland has one of the highest number of people who claim to be Christian, and yet the very lowest church attendance of anywhere in the country. So are you guys just really good liars? <laughs> Or is there a reason? Like, tell us the, the reason why so many claim to be Christian but are not attending anywhere. That's a great question, Mark. And Northview, this is why we need you so desperately to pray. And I also would say to you, as my brother gets ready to preach the Word of God on Communion Sunday to you, to take warning. St. John's Newfoundland is over 500 years old. It has a legacy of religion. The reason why over 70, 80% of our city claims to be Christian, and yet there are less than 1,500 Christians in a city of a quarter of a million people. And the reason is because they took the gospel for granted. It just simply became a way of life. So what's happened in Newfoundland is culturally, we're religious. But practically speaking, they only go when they're born, when they're christened or mm -hmm. baptized or confirmed, when they get married, and that's plummeting, and when they die. Other than that, and then added to that the secularization of the culture, added to that the great scandals of Roman Catholicism and the abandonment of orthodoxy in Anglicanism and others. And that's why you have people that claim it. And I read a quote this morning in my devotions that said, saying things I'm a born-again Christian is like an over-redundant. If you're born again, you are a Christian. The problem is in Newfoundland, many people claim to be Christian, but they have no idea what it means to be born again. And I would heed gently but firmly warn you all as I see British Columbia and I see all these churches and the legacy even don't take the gospel for granted mm. because in a few generations you'll become St. John's Newfoundland mm. wow all right we're gonna pray uh, I want to invite you if you've got time Sunday night uh, you want to hear more come out and join us we're gonna have dessert uh, the young adults mission trip is gonna be headed back there in April that team is gonna be serving us It'll be a great evening. So, Stephen, let me pray for you. Father, we, uh, we thank you for our partnership. We thank you for our brother Stephen and his family. Uh, thank you for the call back to Newfoundland after having been away for a few years in PEI and then taking them home uh, for this little church, Calvary Baptist Church, that has a massive vision for a small church. And, Lord, we pray that you pour on the fuel of your Holy Spirit. Uh, bless them in these endeavors. And thank you, Father, for the partnership we can share with them in this desire to see churches planted from sea to sea and knowing that there's no way that we personally are gonna be planting churches on the East Coast. So we need partnerships. So thank you for this group of brothers and sisters who love you, who love your word, and who are praying like crazy that you would re-evangelize that uh, chunk of real estate called The Rock. So we pray for them. Uh, encourage us, Lord, tonight uh, from your word, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, thanks, buddy. Do you mind taking that? Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, uh, we are going to jump into John chapter 6, so grab your Bibles. Uh, we are going to be picking up, uh, if you've been around, you know we are in the Gospel of John. We started back in September. We're going to do half the book this year, half the book next year. And so we've been three weeks in John chapter 6, and we're going to finally finish it. It's a long chapter with one central theme, but 71 verses, so we spread it out over three weeks. So one of the greatest burdens that as Christian people we share with one another is the burden that the people that we know and love would finish well. The people that we know and love would persevere in their faith, is the theological term that we use, that they would endure to the end. And so whether you're thinking of your family, and some of you might be thinking of parents who have wandered away, or children who have wandered away, or just extended family members, or friends that you know and love, our key desire is that they would finish well. Amen? 
The Apostle Paul, when he was talking about all the things that he had endured, all the, the beatings and the imprisonments and all the hardships he had in proclaiming the gospel, added at the end of this long list, and above all of these things is my burden for the churches. My burden for those who have known the Lord. And, and John, the author of this book, will later write three short little books, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And in 3rd John, verse 4, he says this, that I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. No greater joy than that my kids, my spiritual kids, my physical kids, that they would walk in the truth. And so there are so many warnings given throughout the New Testament about individuals who shipwrecked their faith. Individuals who started out well, walking with the Lord, walking in fellowship with the church, and later turned away from their faith. And we all have stories to tell. I'm sure if we had the time at every one of our campuses, if we just turned into little circles and began to talk in little huddles, all of us could share stories of friends of ours, family members of ours, who at one point in time claimed to be people of faith who no longer claim that affiliation. The fastest growing religious demographic in North America are the nuns and the duns. The nuns, those who claim no religious affiliation, and the duns, those who have been there, done that, want nothing to do with it, walking away from their faith. And there's some really famous stories. There's some very famous stories. If you go back 75 years ago, Billy Graham and a buddy of his, Charles Templeton, who was a Canadian evangelist, many called him the Canadian Billy Graham, and some say he was an even better preacher than Billy. They traveled together. They worked under the umbrella of Youth for Christ across North America and in Europe. But Templeton began to question his faith and specifically the veracity of the word of God. And he began to pepper Billy with questions, saying, you know what, Billy, people don't believe the Bible like you believe it. And the Bible's full of errors, and you can't preach and teach the way you do. And it caused Billy Graham to have a crisis of faith himself. And he began to study and dig deep and question what he was teaching and preaching. And in his autobiography, he talks about an experience in the San Bernardino Mountains down in California, where it finally comes to a head. As he is out on a, a walk in the bush, and he kneels down next to this tree stump, and with his Bible in his hand, he kneels down, and he basically says, Father, I am going to take this by faith. He says this, I am going to accept this as thy word by faith. I am going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts, and I will believe that this is your inspired word. And, and people who knew him at that point in time said from there on out, his ministry began to explode in the best sense of the word. That his preaching became more and more spirit-anointed and powerful, but it was a bitter parting for those two buddies, Charles Templeton and Billy Graham. He went on to a fruitful and persuasive ministry. Templeton, on the other hand, left the ministry, left the church, and ultimately left his faith. And as he grew older, he grew increasingly bitter and hateful towards the church until at the end of his life, he penned his autobiography under this title, Farewell to God. Farewell to God. Now, in our day, probably the best known or the most notable defector of the faith in North America is a guy named Joshua Harris. Some of you will know his story. Joshua could be considered a poster child for North American evangelicalism. He was born into a large Christian homeschooling family, the oldest of seven children. By the time he's age 23, he writes a best-selling book by the title, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And he goes on to write five more books and to start a, a magazine for homeschoolers. 
He pastors a well-known mega church, not a tiny little church, but a big church that had a church planting network out of that church. But in 19 or in 2018, in his early 40s, he begins to question his faith. In his mid-40s, he first apologizes for that original book that he wrote, and he retracted it, saying, I was wrong. I should have never written that book. A year later, he announced that he was divorcing his wife, and it was re-examining his faith, and one year later, he claimed to no longer believe the faith that he once preached. Now, there is a whole movement. If you don't know about this, there is an entire movement on social media under various hashtags of people sharing their stories of deconversion, of deconversion, of leaving the faith, ex-evangelicals, deconstructionists, people sharing their stories of how they've left the church and the faith of their childhood and how they are deconstructing their faith. And so the question that we might ask this weekend from our text, John 6, is this question, where do you expect to be, spiritually speaking, 15 to 20 years from today? Now, some of you are thinking, oh my goodness, by then I'm going to be dead. <laughs> then it's the most important question for you. Because where do you expect to be, spiritually speaking, if you're physically dead? That's a very, very important question. But for those of you who are still going to be alive 10, 15, 20 years from now, Lord willing, it is a sober and a relevant question. And if it all depended upon you, which of course we know it doesn't, but if you could paint the picture of what your life is going to look like 20 years from today, what it, would it look like? Would you say to this audience around you that I hope to be walking with the Lord, I hope to be enjoying intimacy and fellowship with the Lord, I hope to be serving and loving and giving and growing in my faith, I hope to be enjoying the sweet fellowship and conversation with other believers in my life, I hope to be active in my local church and winsomely sharing my faith and giving generously of all of my life, would that be how you might describe your life 15 to 20 years from today? Because John 6 opens with great crowds of people following Jesus, and John 6 ends with most of them walking away. It's a sobering text. So we're jumping into the middle of a conversation. So if you happen to have missed a couple weeks, or if you're visiting from like Newfoundland or somewhere, uh, you will probably need to go back and listen to the last two messages, or at least read the first part of the chapter, because it's 71 long verses. We broke it into three messages because there is so much here. And it is a long, rich, and deep passage, but it is ultimately all about bread. Chapter 6 is all about bread. The metaphor of living bread for our souls. And it is the first of Jesus' seven I am statements. I am bread. I am light. I am the gate or the door into the kingdom. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection. I am the way, truth, and the life, and I am the true vine. Seven distinct metaphors that John records Jesus stating of himself. Just word pictures that help us understand who he claimed to be. And in this one, I am bread. And as we talked a couple weeks ago, bread that every culture around the world has some form of baked, broiled, roasted, cooked, some form of starch that they call a bread-type substance that is a staple of the human diet around the globe in every culture. And just like bread satisfies the human body, there is spiritual bread that will satisfy our souls. And Jesus says, I am that bread. I am the one that will satisfy you. So the chapter opens with that object lesson. Just to remind you, Jesus feeding 5,000 men plus women and children, so 10, 12, 15,000 perhaps. 
and then 38 verses of teaching and explanation the next day, and that was last weekend's message, that long chunk in the middle, and then it ends with today's text beginning at verse 60, where he asks the most important question that any person can ask. When Jesus turns to his disciples and he asks them, the 12, will you walk away as well? Do you want to leave me too? And it is so relevant. This text is incredibly relevant. I prayed a lot this week about this. Because you and I know very, very well that so many around us, all across the Fraser Valley, all across Abbotsford and Mission, and certainly all across Canada, many, many, many previously churched Christian people have walked away from their faith. And the question is, will we jettison our faith as well? And so Jesus asks the question, do you want to leave too? How about you? Are you going to leave me too? So we're going to read the text like we always do. We're going to work our way through it. We're going to wrap it around three observations. We're going to talk about why they were offended. Just a little bit of review from last week. We're going to talk about an even greater offense that the text alludes to. And then we're going to talk about the miracle of overcoming offense and the work that the Spirit of God has to do in our lives. So number one is why the people were offended. So it begins with this, when many of his disciples heard it, heard what? Well, the previous teaching from those 38 verses. When they heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? These are hard words, Jesus. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense at this? Do you take offense at what you've just heard me teach? Now, the first thing that we need to note is he's talking to his disciples, and later in verse 66, it says many of his disciples walked away. Many disciples hear it. Six verses later, many disciples turn away. What we need to note is not all disciples are actually disciples. Not everyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus is actually a follower of Jesus. Not everybody who checks off the census box, I'm a Christian, is in any way, shape, or form a Christian. Not all disciples are disciples. There's four groups in this story, this chapter. It starts with the massive crowds, the 5,000 plus that were fed the bread and the fish. Within that crowd, there's a group called the Jews, those people that just keep barking at Jesus everywhere he goes, chasing him around, questioning him, asking difficult theological questions. There is a group within that larger group called the disciples, the the general followers, the crowd who was tracking along with Jesus, seeing the signs and wonders, intrigued by his teaching, curious, maybe even seeking, maybe even genuine in their heart. They were curious, they were hanging out, but they weren't yet truly convinced. And then within that, that tiny little intimate group called the 12. That we'll get to later in the text, the 12 disciples or the 12 apostles. So some of these disciples were not truly disciples, and they hear Jesus' words, and they're like, that's tough. And you go, why were they offended? Well, I'm not going to re-preach last weekend's message, but let me just remind you, there were three things. Uh, Jesus said to them, you're not actually coming to me for spiritual food, you're just coming because your tummies are empty. You're just looking for bread. I fed you yesterday, and you're going to be fed today, and you're offended of all this spiritual talk. You just want the free meal. That's why you're here. You came for the free food. Secondly, there is a theological offense, because Jesus very clearly in this text tells us you can't save yourself. And that statement offends human pride. When Jesus says, nobody comes to me unless the Father draws him, it butts up against our day of self-determination. And you say to people, there's nothing you can do to contribute to salvation. That's offensive, right? What do you mean? 
Surely God is gonna count something for good of all my giving and praying and serving and loving. I have to contribute something to this. And Jesus is like, nope, you to contribute nothing. It's all on the Father to draw you. That's offensive, right? And thirdly, of course, they were offended by Jesus' words when he starts talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. They're like, oh, this is just gross, Jesus. You've gone too far. Like, it's offensive. That metaphor, like, you've taken it too far. What you're calling us to is too hard, Jesus. This teaching is tough to swallow. Now, we see this all the time in the day that we live in. Particularly as you get into conversation with the nuns and the duns, you will hear the reasons that they have left the faith behind, and it's typically because they've butted up against some hard teaching of Jesus' word. So in his book, Before You Lose Your Faith, Brent McCracken gives a dozen examples of hard sayings of Jesus that in our modern ears, people find offensive, that in our Western world, their minds close off to the gospel because they butt up against these hard words of Jesus. And he says this, in a, I'll give him to give you six of them, not 12, but six. In a believe in yourself world, Christianity calls you to deny yourself and take up your cross. In a you do you world that emphasizes expressive individualism, authenticity, and non-conformity, Christianity is about conforming to the likeness of Jesus. In a consumeristic and greedy culture, Christianity calls you to costly generosity and a willingness to give up material possessions. I got to give up my stuff? In a self-oriented world of self-promotion, self-help, and selfies, Christianity calls you to be an others-focused servant. In a sexually progressive culture that sanctions pretty much anything in the bedroom as long as it's consensual, Christianity says sex is intended for the covenantal union of one man and one woman. In a pluralistic world with a diversity of beliefs in which all roads lead to heaven is a comforting thought. Christianity calls you to believe that there is only one path to heaven, trusting in Jesus. And there's six more like that. And many people today hear words like that, and they're like, those are hard words. I don't like those words. I don't like what Jesus is teaching. And they walk away. So McCracken goes on to say this, that none of this is easy to practice or believe. And the list could be much longer. There's nothing comfortable about truly following Jesus. And those who say otherwise, or whose version of Christianity is conveniently custom fit to their personal comfort, whether in politics or sexual proclivities, are deceiving themselves and harming the cause of Christ. Now, them some hard words, right? Those are hard words. But Jesus says basically the bottom line is this, that to accept the true teachings and the true cost of true Christianity and everything that it teaches us is to swim against the tide of culture. It's to swim upstream. It's to swim against the current of our culture. Or as Bonhoeffer, his famous statement, probably one of his most famous statements, a German theologian, when he said, when God calls a person to himself, he bids them come and die. That God's call to the human creature is come to me and come and die. Hard words. Hard words. Jesus presses in further then in verse 62. We'll pick up the end of verse 61. He says, do you take offense at this? 
And then he goes on to say, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now, that's a really interesting little phrase. And what I want to talk about is the greater offense and the offense of the cross. And we need to press in. You need to stay with me because some of you are already saying, how did you get the cross out of the ascension? Jesus said, what if you see the ascension and now you're talking about the crucifixion? Stay with me. Give me your ears just for a minute. This is one of those moments where I take you on this long rabbit trail, right? And you're like, what's he doing? And eventually we're going to come back to the text. Smile. Verse 62, scholars tell us, can be taken in a couple different ways. Jesus could say, you're offended at this. Well, just wait until you see the ascension of the Son of Man, and it'll take care of all your offense. Because when you finally see the ascension, then you're going to be convinced that I am who I said I am, because you're going to see me rise in power, and the offense will drop away. So just wait till the ascension. It could be taken that way. Or... It could be taken, if you think this is bad, wait till you see the Son of Man ascend. That's an even greater offense. And I personally think it's that second meaning that brings greater clarity to this text, that the ascension may actually cause more offense. And you're like, how so? How is the ascension a scandal or an offense? And I use that word scandal because that's the Greek word for offense, scandalous. It's our English word scandal. This is scandalous, Jesus. How could the ascension be scandalous? Well, on two levels. Number one is this, that the idea that the Messiah would leave them was anathema to the first century Jew. Every Old Testament expectation of the Messiah, the Christ, carried a political and an eternal dimension. The Messiah is going to come and stay. So you go back to Daniel, where we first met that term, son of man. The primary name, one of the primary names for the Messiah, the Christ, the King, is the son of man. Daniel. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there was one like a son of man. There it is. And he came to the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days is a word picture for God the Father, sitting in all of his glory, as you read the context. And he was presented before him. And to him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Then jump to Psalm 72.8, Canada's motto actually. He will have dominion from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. And when Zechariah quotes from Psalm 72, he adds even more layers to it in saying that this humble king who comes riding on the bank of a donkey, is how Zechariah describes him, is going to be the ruler who will usher in peace and make wars to cease and his rule will be forever. And so the thought that the Son of Man would leave them is not in the cards because he's come to stay. He's come to set up his kingdom, his eternal rule and reign. And you can almost hear the thought process. Wait a minute, Jesus, what are you talking about? You're leaving us? We're just getting rolling. Like the popularity, the crowds, is starting. Like we're all hyped up, we're ready to go, Jesus. And you're leaving us? Offense. And in John 12, so fast forward a few chapters and we'll get there eventually. The Passion Week. And Jesus saying to his disciples, the time has come for me to be glorified. And then he says this, now is my soul troubled. He was troubled because he saw what lay ahead of him. He knew the crucifixion was coming. It's the Garden of Gethsemane type conversation. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. In other words, not my will, but your will be done, Father. 
And then he goes on to say to his disciples, and when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to die on a cross. And so the crowd answered him. Now listen to what they say. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? We understand from the Old Testament that you're here to stay for good. Where are you going, Jesus? So they might have been offended by the fact that he said he's going to leave them. But secondly, and more importantly, what they are not seeing and what Jesus is trying to make them understand and that which they will ultimately understand is that the path to Jesus' ascension is the path of suffering. How are you doing? Like, are you Okay. It can look like you're glazed over, but maybe you're just deep in thought. (laughs) Ultimately, this path of ascension is the path of suffering. You see, that word ascend literally means to ascend, to be lifted up, to be glorified, but it's also used as a metaphor to praise or to lift up or to exalt or to uh, lift high. And there are four distinct times in John's gospel where Jesus talks about being lifted up. So back in John 3, we already studied this a few months ago. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. In John 8, he will go on to say, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, John 12, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then the text that we just read a few moments ago, and when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so if you trace those word phrases and you put them together as a group of words and you clump together, Son of Man, Ascension, Lifted Up, Glorified, Suffering, Add, Death, Burial, Resurrection, put all those words together in a group and do a little word search through the Gospel of John, through all of the Gospels, you will find an intricate wordplay and association of these themes where it lets us know that the Son of Man is indeed going to be glorified. The Son of Man is indeed going to be lifted up. The Son of Man is going to rule over the nations. The Son of Man is going to be exalted to the Father's right hand. And he is indeed going to reign, Corinthians 15 tells us, until he has put everything under his authority. And then he hands the keys back to the Father and says, okay, it's all done, Dad. Now it belongs to you. I've done my job. But the path to that exaltation is the path of suffering and death, and humiliation. So in between the two sections that we read, John chapter 12, verse 23, verse 24 goes on to say this, the Son of Man is going to be glorified, and then he says this, and truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And it is a scandalous message to the human ear. That everything that we think about power and authority and ruling and reigning, it gets turned upside down. Okay, now just humor me for just one more layer, okay? One layer deeper yet. Because they only had the Old Testament. So go back to Isaiah's prophecy, and Isaiah says that the path to the exaltation would be the path of rejection and death. We read this at Easter, typically that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And then it goes on to say this. Listen to these words. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Let that just rest in your mind for a moment. It was the will of the Lord, God's will, to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Now, what the first century Jews were doing is the same thing we do today, going through the Old Testament, going through the New Testament, and picking out, cherry-picking all the good stuff, and then overlooking and discarding the stuff either that we don't understand or that we don't like. I love that part about his days being prolonged. I love that part that he comes bringing prosperity. That'll preach. And I love that part about healing in the atonement. Jesus, you got to heal me. It's right there in the Isaiah 53 text. But let's skip over all that. It's the will of the Lord to crush him stuff. That doesn't preach very well. And so as they're headed to Jerusalem on Passion Week, Jesus says to the disciples... I'm going to Jerusalem for this purpose. I'm going there because they're going to kill me. He tells them right up front. And you know the conversation. Peter takes him aside. Good old Peter. Peter. And he began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen. And Jesus turns and says to him, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So how will the Son of Man ascend The Son of Man will ascend down the Via Dolorosa, down the path of pain, down the path of suffering, the path of the cross. See him there, the great I am. A crown of thorns on his head. The Father's heart displayed for us, oh God, we thank you for the cross. Lifted up on Calvary's hill, we cursed your name, and even still, you bore our shame and paid the cost. Oh God, we thank you for the cross. Amen. And you think you've been offended by my talk about living bread? You think you're offended by eating my flesh and drinking my blood? What are you going to do when you see the Son of Man hanging on the cross? And even more so when you hear that the path to life is through the door of death. That you want to be seated with Christ. You want to be raised with Christ. You want to be exalted with Christ. Then you too must travel this very same path that unless a grain of wheat dies, it remains dead. And finally, we get to the point where we're ready to enter through the narrow gate. And we know what happened. Most of you have read the story. That the crowds turn away and the disciples themselves hid themselves. John follows along at a distance. Peter sits outside the courtroom in a charcoal fire. A few stood around the cross, but most of them abandoned Jesus. And on Resurrection Sunday morning, Easter Sunday morning, just a handful of frightened, disillusioned disciples remain. And three women go out to the tomb and lo and behold, the tomb is empty. 
And Peter and John go running to see if it's true. And then later that afternoon on the road to Emmaus, Jesus appears to a couple unnamed disciples and walks them through the Old Testament saying, this is what happened to happen. They run back to Jerusalem and say, we saw the resurrected Jesus. And then he shows up in the room and he says, here I am, touch my side, touch my hands, give me something to eat. And now wait here for power from on high. It's significant. He walked them through, it says, the Old Testament scriptures. They didn't have the New Testament. The Old Testament said, this is precisely what the scriptures were telling you. I had to suffer and die. And 50 days later on Pentecost, the spirit lit the flame. The spirit of God falls onto a group of only 120 people. Think about it. Tens of thousands Tens of thousands had followed him all over Israel, benefiting from his teaching, seeing his miracles, eating the bread that he produced, watching his miracles. Tens of thousands, you're down to 120. They had all followed him on Facebook and liked him on Instagram. But when it got hard, they turned away. And some experienced the miracle, however, of overcoming the offense. And we're just going to read through the text. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. He just doubles back around to the teaching that he had already. The only way that you get to through me is a miracle. It is a miracle of the Spirit's work. But what I've been talking to you about are the words of spirit, not flesh. They're spiritual words. And you come to faith in Christ through spiritual means. And then it goes on to say, and after this, many of his disciples turned their back and no longer walked with him. They're like, if that's what it's about, Jesus, then we're taking our toys and we're headed home. And then he goes on to say this. So Jesus turns to the 12. Now think about this most intimate moment. Crowds have just walked away, and Jesus turns down to the 12. You can almost hear it in his voice, and do you want to leave me too? Are you going to walk away too? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you're the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, even one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Where else can we go, Jesus? You have the words of life. Where else are we going to get living bread, Jesus? So friends, this weekend, what I have to ask you and what I have to plead with you about, specifically those of you who are considering leaving the faith, and the reason I say that is because in a church our size, I know that every weekend there are two groups. There are those considering the faith and coming through the doors interested in the faith. And there are always people sitting in the pews who are actually considering leaving the faith. And so specifically, I need to ask you, where do you think that you're going to go? As Peter says, where would we turn? Because the world offers nothing that will ultimately satisfy. The world will offer you an awful lot of things. The bread that satisfies this side of eternity, according to the world, is money and sex and power and pleasure and fame and fortune. It's been the same for thousands of years. We're not that creative. The same old, same old. And if you study the people who had it all, who got it all, they will tell you that at the end of the day, none of it leaves you 
satisfied, it leaves you hungry. The next morning you wake up and you're like, I'm not full. You want life, Jesus says, real life? Then come to me and die. Come and lay your life down. Do like what Billy Graham. Father, I'm going to accept this as your word by faith, and I'm going to allow my faith to go beyond my intellectual doubts and questions. And so Jesus presses into this question, and we need to press this question too. Am I going to walk away? Are you going to be here 20 years from today? Not at Northview. Are you going to be in the Christian faith 20 years from today? Post-COVID, this is a, not in my notes, but it's worth saying. The return across the states, they're saying, is about 60 to 70% of pre-COVID attendance. That's the average. And the studies that are beginning to be codified, do you know the generation that is the last to come back? 90% of parents who have kids under age 18 in their homes are back in church because they want their kids back in church. So 90% have returned. Do you know the largest generation who are not coming back? It's 45 to 65 the empty nesters, because the kids are no longer there to motivate them. If you're in that age group, you're in a danger zone. Am I going to join the crowds of deconstructionists? Am I going to rewrite the word of God so plainly declared? John 6 is all about bread. Without bread, we die. And Jesus clearly says, I am that bread. I will sustain you. Come and eat. My words are life and truth. So my favorite question in the Heidelberg Catechism is question number one. It's worth the cost of buying an entire copy. What is your only comfort in life and death? What a great question. What is your only comfort? I got one thing to comfort me. That I am not my own. Now forget about reading the rest. Just look at those first six words. Those are countercultural words. For anyone to say, I am not my own, goes against the grain of everything in our culture. What is my comfort? That I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, and life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Woo! He has fully paid for all my sin with his precious blood, he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. And he also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall, and a lot of them are falling, from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. What's your one comfort in life and death? That you are not your own. My prayer this week has been for two groups of people. Those who are finding their way toward faith and those who are thinking about leaving. We've taken three weeks in this chapter. But as with every text that we study every weekend, we must ask ourselves a question, what is in this text for me to obey? Because if this text is true and if Jesus' words are the only words of life, then you have to ask the question because what you believe to be true about Jesus' claims matter. And there are so many other implications and rabbit trails and conversations in this text, but the primary message, hands down, is that only Jesus can give us life. And so the question is, will we lay our lives down and follow him? Hard words lead to soft hearts, we are told. And soft words lead to hard hearts. You remember John's purpose for writing the book. We've said it almost every weekend. At the end of chapter 20, he says, the reason I'm writing this book is to convince you that Jesus is who he said he was. I'm trying to convince you to believe. 
unapologetically. And so the question I leave with you today is what do you say to Jesus? Will you follow him? Will you walk away? What's your decision? Will we obey him today even when his words are hard? Will we take our hands off the reins of control in our life and give them to Jesus? Will we get up on the altar as a living sacrifice? Will we, with Galatians 2, say, I have been crucified with Christ? And the life I live in the flesh, I now live by faith in the Son of God who died and gave himself for me. With Corinthians 6, that I am not my own. My body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have to honor God in this body. What do you believe to be true about Jesus' claims matters? Let's stand together. We're going to sing. We're going to pray. We're going to come to the table. Father, you know the importance of this text in the day and age that we live in. We just heard Stephen a few moments ago give us a challenge that we would not do what happened in Newfoundland, that they forgot the gospel. That this oldest province in Canada, some 500 years, that was a hotbed of Christianity just a few hundred years ago, is now virtually churchless. They forgot you. They forgot the gospel. And Lord, it can happen here. And Father, we are all very, very well aware of the people that we know and love, that we are deeply concerned that they would not walk away. And Lord, even in our services this weekend, I know that there are men and women who are challenged, who are struggling, who either have family members they're deeply concerned about, or who they themselves are asking deep theological, intellectual, philosophical questions. And Holy Spirit, I would pray that you would do that miracle of undoing the offense. That you would do in their heart what no human being can do. That you would soften their heart and open their spiritual eyes and ears. That they could see and hear and understand. And that even in this moment, they could say, I choose to believe. I've decided to follow Jesus. And by God's grace, there will be no turning back. May it be true under your glory. And Father, the amazing thing about it is, as you're glorified, we have incredible joy. My goodness, what a gift that is. Thank you, Father, for what you've done through Christ. Amen.